Well, the following audio back. is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available the, uh, online at parkchurchdenver.org. I don't know what it is about my ears. I've got this uh, ear thing that uh, single over-the-ear Britney Spears things. We just don't cooperate, so I usually use those double ear things. So anyway, but this works. Um, the theme for this conversation, as we know, is about how Jesus transforms relationships. I'm going to put the God story painting back up on the screen here because I want to briefly reconnect us with the narrative that the Bible is telling from Genesis to Revelation. And, and uh, not just objectively the Bible speaking to us, but the story that's written within your heart and my heart. I don't say that arrogantly. I say it with a real sense of dignity and uh, wonder about every one of you. Some of you would know the converted atheist from the United Kingdom, actually born in Ireland, but did most of his teaching in, in uh, England, uh, C.S. Lewis, who talked about the more he studied Scripture, the more he began to realize that this theme of the image of God meant that there really are no ordinary people, that you've never met and you never will meet an ordinary person. In fact, C.S. Lewis went on to say that if we were to see any follower of Christ, anyone in relationship with God by grace alone through faith alone, if we should see them as they will be, we would be tempted to worship them. See, scriptures have this incredible story that, as we saw, declares that we're made for that shame-free nakedness that, once again, Bob reminded us of, those three haunting emotions that contradict the DNA within our soul, shame and fear and guilt. But we're, we're made for something so different, and, and we're guaranteed that one day the Father that began a good work in us will complete it. That's something we want to talk a little bit about tonight um, would so want this weekend certainly to finish with the theme of hope that, that when the Scripture talks about the Father being at work in our hearts and that He is committed to complete it, that sometimes is all it will take, and that's simply what it does take for us to stay present in this process of becoming relationally more healthy. And that's been a real journey that I've been on that I've kicked and screamed against because I am in a relational doofus. Uh, and I would not exaggerate to say that there's probably no one in this room that, that began to move into adult life with uh, a greater predictability of being a failure in relationship than me. In fact, uh, well into my marriage, remember when Darlene and I first started doing some very important counseling work, in fact, God was so gracious to us to bring me to a burnout that was... Uh, um, an important part of my story to keep me from running. Uh, we started some counseling. We did a 10-day intensive, which is kind of a daunting thing, but our counselor that we began to work with back in the uh, Nashville, Tennessee area said, really, thanks, Scotty, you're broken, darling, you're broken, and your coupleship is broken. And so we, we began a process. I never forget that our, our lead therapist said to me early into that 10-day experience, she said, Scotty, you... You may be one of the most intimacy deficient people I've ever met. 
Now, she didn't say that with scorn. I would have, I would have run quickly if it was a sense of like, you know, I cannot believe how screwed up you are. But it was the kind of gospel indictment unto enlightenment. It was like, here's a woman whose own story was she had been gang raped as an 11-year-old little girl. And she understood the way of relational brokenness, even to the point that this remarkable woman went on to become a world-renowned therapist going into prisons working with the predators that rape little girls like her. How big is the gospel? How transforming? What has Jesus signed on for? So in the beginning of that process that thankfully 15 years ago was eventuated in some greater health and uh, a guy so intimacy deficient, so alienated from my own soul, so more comfortable in talking about God and helping others come to know him, finally beginning to believe me too, even me too. There is hope. God can change us. Jesus can change us. Jesus can turn orphans into sons and daughters of the Father delight. Jesus can break those patterns of shame and fear and guilt and really begin to heal us in those broken places. Well, what does it look like? How does Jesus do that? If you have a Bible or if you have something that would enable your eyes to look on a portion of Scripture, I've got just one text that I want to walk us through tonight that has become for many years now homeroom for me. Remember homeroom? Remember, I don't know if they still do homeroom or not, but back in the old days when we used to walk 10 miles to school every day, always uphill in three feet of snow, um, in those days when we went to school, you always had a homeroom from which you went to your other classes. And homeroom represents that place of mooring, that, that going back to a, 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 a place where you hung your coat, you hung your hat, you hung your heart. In certain parts of the Bible, in my journey of moving from relational doofus into some degree of, of, of husband and, and dad and friend and pastor, this text has been so important. In Philippians, the second chapter, verses 1 through 11, uh, we are introduced to a beautiful paradigm that you find in a lot of other places in the Bible. Thank you. It, oh, thank you. Not only do I covet your voice, I covet your ability to change music stands. You are a poly-gifted servant. The scripture um, shows us this thing called the indicatives of grace and the imperatives of love. And, and it really echoes the story that we're, we're made for life in a garden paradise. We're made for community before the gaze of God, yet tragically, every single one of us and everything in God's world has been fractured, disintegrated, broken. By the grace of God, the third panel tells us there is reason to hope. And there is a hope that is so profound that we learn to remember it into the present to see what the Lord does for people like me and like you. And, and the Apostle Paul brings this, uh, this beautiful picture of gospel transformation in relationship into focus 
beginning at Philippians 2, verse 1. And, and what we're going to read here, uh, what I want you to notice with me in these first several verses is that Paul's going to talk a whole lot about the way Jesus relates to us before he begins to talk about how we relate to one another. That's what we mean by indicatives of grace before we come to the imperatives of love. An indicative is a, it's a statement, it's a fact, it's a declaration. And, and in the Scripture and in the Gospel, there's a lot of things that God says to you and to me. This is who I am. This is what I've done for you. This is how I relate to you. And those are indicatives. They're, they're, not, they're not merely subjective realities. They, they are objective truths that are meant to move us into a very existential or experiential frame of reference. And you're going to see that in these words. In fact, I want us to... Uh, linger into some of the language here that invites us not just to have the informed mind, but also that inflamed heart. We want our theology to become doxology. We want to know Jesus in all three of his offices. The Bible present this Jesus, who is the one that transforms our relationship. The Bible presents him as fulfilling the three great offices that God provided for his family Israel of prophet, priest, and king. According to Scripture, Jesus is the final word. He is the quintessential prophet. book of Hebrews chapter 1 says that our God spoke to us through our fathers in the past, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Jesus is the prophet we listen to. He's the priest fulfilling, once again, as the book of Hebrews would say, Jesus fulfills everything that the Aaronic priesthood, the, the, the community of priests that God provided for his people in the tabernacle and temple. Jesus fulfills everything that the priests were, the mediators, the advocates. He even fulfills who this mysterious figure Melchizedek was, this priest that showed up in Abraham's story. He's the priest we want. In fact, the Bible says of Jesus, he's the wonderful merciful high priest. Now, that does move us into a very experiential or existential part of knowing Jesus. Some of us would love to have Jesus the prophet that just teaches us. And that's why there are some churches in the, in the land that are known as teaching churches, and, and they confuse knowledge with spirituality. Well, we want to learn, but the same Jesus who is the prophet that is incarnate word, he is the high priest that first was our sacrifice. And what do you give a priest? What would you give a priest in the Old Testament? You would give a priest your sin and your brokenness. You, you would give a priest the repentable parts of your story and the repairable parts. Is this or bad battery? Is it going in and out? Can, okay. I'm not sure if we need a new battery um, or I can, I can do this. I don't mind being tethered. See, I don't have Bob, Bob's booming voice. I don't have James' booming voice. I'm a Tar Heel redneck. I need... All right. Is this working? Great. Thank you. All right. New battery. Thank you, my child. Bless you. <laughs> Prophet, priest, and king, this Jesus we're going to 
read about in a few moments. He, he, he speaks, he speaks truth. What do you give a prophet? You give your attention and your conscience. What do you give a priest? You give your sin and brokenness, the repentable parts of your story and the repairable parts of your story. You're not just a rebel, you're broken. And in the Bible, brokenness is two things. It's the fact that I am broken, that's brokenness A, and brokenness B is accepting the fact that I'm broken. There's a lot of us that are broken that won't own it. The beauty of grace is that I'm able to own it. Well, this is a priest that meets us in that. But he's, Jesus is also the great king who is making all things new, including us. Prophet, priest, and king. We don't just need teaching churches. We don't just need priestly churches. We don't just need kingly churches that are thinking about justice and mercy. In a healthy church, all three offices of Jesus are being celebrated and known. And they're being known of us individually as a part of a community. What does that look like? Look at this text. Paul writes, Philippians 2.1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, capital S, God the Holy Spirit, if any tenderness and and compassion, then make my joy complete. Now, we'll pick up at that point in a moment. But just look at these words. What, what What is a healthy, what is a robust way of reflecting upon the gospel inviting us to consider here. Well, just look at a few of the words that Paul uses to say these are realities that you're not wrong to want. Here, here's some here's some experiential things that 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 God intends for you. Words like encouragement, comfort, fellowship, tenderness, and compassion. So you're not wrong to want those things. You're not wrong. We're not wrong to expect and long for those things in relationship, in friendship, in a church, in healthy work environments, in marriage. These are, look, this is just awesome. Look at this. Encouragement, comfort, fellowship, compassion, tenderness. But notice where Paul anchors these. And this is going to be a part of where we go in terms of how, how knowing this great prophet, priest, and king is, is meant to profoundly impact how we think about God, ourselves, unto knowing who we are in the world of our relationship. So it looks like this. Paul says, if you have any encouragement from being united to Christ. So he's already making a bold statement about every single Christian, whether you've been a Christian one nanosecond or whether you've been walking with the Lord for 50 or 60 years. Uh, Every single Christian, what makes you a Christian is not your commitment to do more or try harder. Or like Bob said last night, we're not, Christianity is not an achieved righteousness. It's a received one. If you're a Christian, this is what that means. You are in Christ, or as Paul writes in Colossians 3, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. We are, we, are, we are welcomed, we are known, we are secure. But you see, Paul does something fascinating here. Does that encourage you? Do you see the movement here? He's making a statement. What's the gospel? The gospel is we are in union with Christ, and that is meant to encourage us. 
Greek word for encouragement is one of, of it's a relational word itself. It's, it's coming in the midst of life and having someone be alongside of you. It's a, it is a picture of intimacy. So Paul asked a very important question to believers in Philippi. Are you currently enjoying encouragement in the core of your soul, primarily born out of the fact that you're in union with Christ? Well, let's, before we even go further, let's think about this. Why should we be encouraged because of our union with Christ? Let's remember some of the things that the scriptures say that means. If we are in union with Christ, let's, let's, let's do a little bit of preaching the gospel to our heart tonight. We did a little of this last night. We really should do it every single day. But here's what it means when we say we are united to Christ. It means this. Among other things, every single one of our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. Let's just sit in that in a minute. We are completely forgiven. And we're not just forgiven of the sins that we have acknowledged and confessed and repented of. Forgiveness is a state. You see, when the angels, the night of Jesus' birth, shocked unsuspecting shepherds with the declaration, good news of great joy was for them, and went on to describe that the coming of Jesus would, would bring about the resting of the favor of God upon ill-deserving people. It's a bold affirmation there about you get to know this Jesus. You come to know him. You come to see your second panel need, your disconnect, your rebellion, your distance. You come to see the free grace. It starts with the fact that you are completely forgiven. Along with that, it means what else? Through union with Christ. It means that something's been put in our account. Think about tonight if... uh, after we hear this marvelous concert and are all jazzed about the beauty of art and, and, and just a good weekend together, you decide with friends to, to go get some food and you're going to go to your favorite uh, sushi restaurant and they don't take cards, they don't take checks, they just take cash. So you got to have some cash. So what do you do? You stop at the ATM machine, put in your debit card, put in the numbers, get your you know 30 bucks or whatever you need and you get your little receipt out and, and before then crumpling it up and throwing it away, you just happen to glance down. All of a sudden you realize, okay, that's good. Here's my 30 bucks. And it says my balance is $922,300,012. And, of course, you just immediately start pushing buttons in to get more money out. No, no, you're, you're, you have gospel virtue, not just gospel identity. So you call the bank president. Something's whacked out about your machine here. You know, they're this, this saying that this is mine. And the bank president says, you know what? Actually, there has been put in your account these riches, and there's more where that came from, according to the generous benefactor. And that's a horrible illustration because it crassly fuels our greed. And what would we do with $900 million? But a currency far grander than that has already been put in your account. I didn't get this part of the gospel until many, many, many years of knowing Jesus. That when I became a Christian, I wasn't given a clean slate with a chance to move forward in life and do better this time. I was given complete forgiveness, but also that slate, that board was filled up with every good thing Jesus did that now was considered to be mine. Dear friends, 
Have you heard, and perhaps tonight even more importantly, do you believe that God has put in your account all the righteousness of Christ? That it is impossible for God to love you more than he does tonight, and it's impossible for him to love you less because he has buried your life in Christ. You are his. You are forgiven. You are righteous. You're adopted. He sealed you with his Holy Spirit. It goes with being in union with Christ. It's an incredible picture in the book of Ephesians. Paul talks about the Spirit being the first fruits. It's actually a word that's translated in the secular literature as a wedding band. Spirit is the engagement ring. It means that we are legally married to Jesus. We are betrothed. And we begin to discover in relational growth that Jesus is the spouse we always wanted, that really no human spouse or seven perfect spouses, my imagination, could ever fill up the place reserved for Jesus. And he's already given himself for me to make me, us, his bride. And the Spirit has sealed us. And the Spirit's living inside of us because we're in union with Christ, telling us every single day if our hearts are inclined to hear his voice, that we are the sons and daughters of God's delight. And these outrageous words in the Bible come to us and they, they are proclaimed to us by God's Spirit that should generate this degree of encouragement that Paul's talking about here that, yes, yeah, sometimes we get disconnected from, but we always want to move back towards words of the prophets that would say that because God has taken away our punishment through Jesus, the Lord now is towards us a God that greatly delights in us, who rejoices over us with singing, who will quiet us with his love. I hope these are more than refrigerator verses or words that your grandmother calligraphied for you or cross-stitched. See, they are men according to Paul. It's like, do you, do, you, do you understand what's true because you're in union with Christ? Because if that is not encouraging you, you're going to find, you're going to seek to find your encouragement somewhere. And more often than not, we look to people to give us the encouragement God alone can. And that fuels in us what my spiritual father Jack Miller used to talk about living as an approval suck. What's the image of being an approval suck? It just means you're, you're going to people to nourish your soul, to fill you up. You begin to live a life of relationships, and you choose your church, you choose your friends, you choose your boyfriends, girlfriends, your hunks, your honeys, your spouses. You choose other people's kids. You, find, you choose people to basically fill that part of you up that is a good part of you. Encouragement from being united with Christ. Interesting as well, this, we need to see this. These words are addressed to the corporate community. See, there's a, there's a corporate identity going on here that Paul's saying to us as a family of believers. Does this mark the culture of your community, your church? Are, are, are y'all individually and collectively finding your encouragement in Christ? Because if not, you can, as Paul writes about in Galatians 5, end up biting and devouring one another. It's just so axiomatic to see how, yes, Jesus meets intimacy-deficient people like Scotty, 
who even as a pastor lived far more like the Wizard of Oz hiding behind curtains than risking moving in to the messy world of relationships with his wife's heart, with his kids' hearts. I remember when I started getting relationally healthy after the Lord began to convince me this stuff is core true and it's meant to be deeply experienced and cultivated. My wife and I started getting healthier together. Then I went to my oldest of two kids. I've got a daughter, Kristen, and a son, Scott. And as the Lord really began to show me the disconnect of my soul relationally, I went to Kristen, my daughter, started with her and I said, honey, you know your mom and I have been working on our stories. Yes, dad, and I'm so glad. I said, honey, I don't want to be 81 and you 50 when we finally connect like I did with my dad. I said, I want you to tell me, Kristen, would you start today telling me, what do you remember about me as your dad? What, what are your earliest remembers about what it meant for me to be your father? And that was a risk. But you see, when, when you're beginning to, to know the encouragement, the fellowship, the tenderness, and the compassion that comes to us in Jesus, you're going to take those risks. Here's what my daughter said, and we've been growing in this one ever since. She said, Dad, thank you for asking. First thing that comes to mind when you ask me about how I, how I remember relating to you as your daughter, she said, I remember I was about 11 or 12, and I could tell I was becoming too much for you, so I watched you disappear into more ministry. Well, you know that hurt, but it hurt so good. In the gospel, this healing journey is like the best kind of surgery. It's like, again, what Bob said tonight, the shame, the guilt, and the fear does not have to define you. And you can begin to believe in your story, your relational story, that the words of a prophet are just as much for you as Israel when he said, I will restore the years eaten away by the locust. We're not holding out silly promises here or Pollyanna hope when we say that the Lord will work in your relational story as though we can promise every one of you, here's the bow on the end of your story. I can tell you this, however, as the gospel goes deeper in your heart, as you get to know this Jesus better and better, as you begin to ponder encouragement and these theological categories begin to become not just a lyric but music in your soul, then showing up and risking the reconciliation and looking at the brokenness it will bring a dignity and a peace to your soul that is so sweet, even as it will decorate your cheeks with tears of what you want. Look at the text. Any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from His love. I put the emphasis there because we want to be comforted. We want to be comforted. When my mom was killed in a car wreck, head-on car crash when I was 11, and it set up in our family system a story of where my father went into such a depression. He did not speak the name Martha, my mom, his wife, for nearly 40 years. When mom died, I wanted comfort. I would hear my father well at the far end of the house and bury my head under a pillow, so alone. We never, as a father and two boys, we never wept together. We never touched each other. We never hugged each other. We never stood at the grave together. We never went back to the grave together for 40 years. I was so alone, so afraid, so shamed, so guilty. Brother, thank you for telling me my story again tonight and reminding me that's exactly where Jesus meets us. I found comfort in food. It's the first thing I went to in life. I wanted comfort. What do you do when you're 11 or 12 and your mom's dead? And you don't know it yet, but you actually have a 
three-year prior story of sexual abuse that racked your soul and put you in a place of being confused about your masculine identity well before your mom died. But you pushed that wound so deep into your big toes, you wouldn't discover that one until many years later. Went to the cookie jar. I discovered comfort food before Paula Dean ever called it comfort food. And, and, and you know what? And I grew the nickname Meatball because by the time I started the ninth grade, I was five feet tall and weighed 170 pounds. And my self-awareness had nothing to do with I'm fat and I'm embarrassed. It's just like I know comfort. I, I, uh, I have found comfort. If, I'd, if that story had started later, I may have started with cocaine. I started with food. And my story went on, and I don't have time tonight to kind of walk you through the different idol structures of my heart that got fueled by abusing different substances, including massive amounts of alcohol. But I want you to know this, that in the midst of that disconnect, in the midst of that intimacy deficiency, this gospel that I helped other people understand began to become a song in my soul. And the comfort that you want is the comfort that I needed any comfort from his love. How does the love of Jesus comforts us? It meets us exactly at that place of shame, fear, and guilt. You're going to do something with those things. Comfort from his love. A comfort that's not a power that makes you feel like you better do better next time or get over it. See, it's so awesome to see that in Union with Christ, the story isn't getting over stuff. It's growing through it for the benefit of others because mercy and comfort that come to you flow to your neighbor. The same mercy and comfort as you really sense. Jesus is meeting me precisely there. Fellowship with the Spirit. I love that. Again, we all want fellowship. It's koinonia. We, we look for community all over the place. Go figure before we find it in the perfect gospel community or whatever. It's, it's to fellowship with God himself. So thankful for a spiritual father that taught me that prayer, that knowing the Lord, it's really learning through the gospel to fellowship with my father. It's not going into life making dad proud of me. It's partnering, as Jack Miller would say, partnering with my father in his world because it's his world and he's redeeming a, an every nation bride for Jesus and, and he loves this world and he made it. It's, it's going with him, fellowshipping the spirit. Fellowship with the spirit is deepening your intimacy with the father. Tenderness and compassion. Yeah, all these things generated by a greater understanding. This Jesus is pursuing me. This Jesus wants me. I am the Gomer-like whore that he married himself to to present me as a bride wearing the robe of his own beauty. Notice where the text goes. Then make my joy complete, says Paul. Kind of go here, linger here. Then I'll pray for us for a few moments. And I love this. Again, we look at the indicatives. Again, what, what is our calling coming out of this weekend? We, we want we want to say, Lord, we want to sue heaven. We want to we want to say, Lord, thank you. You intend for us individually and corporately to find the encouragement we want in union with Christ, union communion with Christ. You, Lord, you intend to, to create fellowship. You intend to comfort us with your love. Lord, we want that because we foolishly, 
look to sex, rock and roll, romance, power. We look to something for what you tell us is freely ours. Show us or lead us. Because where will it go in our relationships? Look at this. He says, Paul says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose to Nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. To see the shift that Paul makes, he goes from talking about how Jesus radically relates to us. And then Paul begins to say, as this is true, as it's increasingly your reality, don't just think about yourself. Think about others. C.S. Lewis said it first, and then Tim Keller wrote a cool little, about a 20-page booklet on this. C.S. Lewis said something that Tim keyed off on, and Lewis's comment basically went like this. The gospel will not lead you to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less often. Can you imagine the freedom of that? Can you imagine the freedom of doing life without needing to look in the mirror? Literally the one on the health club wall or... Or in the face of your neighbor defining who you are, by the way, when you walk into the room, what was I wanted? Did they look away from me? Did, you know, can you imagine the freedom of self-forgetfulness? Can you imagine the Lord making innies into outies? Not your belly button, but your heart. Luther talked about only grace can take a concave heart and make it convex. See, can you just think about married friends or engaged friends, what this would look like in a marriage. Can you you imagine a marriage where a husband and wife are out doing one another in kindness? Whether then foolishly like Tom Cruise said in the beginning of the movie, Jerry Maguire, you know the classic line, he looks at whatever her name was and what he say, you complete me. No human being is going to complete you. Don't manipulate him or her saying that. Don't foolishly believe it can happen. In humility, back to what Bob said last night. I love those two words Bob gave us, humility and hospitality. See, humility is not all shucks. I'm just an old frog. Y'all just kind of put up with me a little longer here. Humility is not self-flagellation. Hope I said that right word. It's like one time in a church I was preaching, I said, let's all get prostate together. As, as, as opposed to prostrate, right? You know, there's a difference. Words, words, James, words. Humility is the freedom of a centered soul. Bob talked this morning about a non-anxious presence, how how the gospel creates this ability to be in chaos, to be in relationship, to offer a non-anxious presence. You know what? We will be an unanxious people as we know the non-anxious Jesus. And there's a lot more we could say about this tonight, but I think we've really shared enough because we've got some wonderful music to be listening to that's going to artistically and through narrative story kind of help us talk about the dynamics, the interplay of God's love for us and our awkwardness, our confusion, how we still reach for fig leaves, how we are so clueless about the covering of grace that we have. But I think what I'd like to do is just use my remaining few moments just to, just to pray for us, to thank God this gospel is true, and maybe to pray it into our, our hearts a little bit. So let me, let me just take a few moments for us. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for 
for Park Church and for other communities represented in this weekend and in this time together. Father, thank you that the gospel is not just true, that it's beautiful. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that union with you is not just a theological category. It's a knee-buckling reality. And that you are singing to us in the gospel. Lord, cut through the cacophony. Cut through the voices of the accuser that's telling us not only that we did wrong, but we are wrong. Cut through the lies of the labels that were placed upon us, Lord. I remember so well, Lord, beginning that process of getting free and really believing that you love and receiving your comfort, Lord, all the labels I had to discard, those coming to me by the contempt of my world, those I branded myself with, Lord. Father, there are your sons and daughters in this room that still don't live by the name on their birth certificate or their new birth certificate, but by a dad that's dead whose pleasure they're still seeking or by a beast of a predator that abused the body and threw away the bones or by a culture that keeps saying your body is ugly. You're not enough. You never will be. Father, by your spirit, by the power that is the gospel, capture the hearts of all of us together in fresh and tender ways. We need encouragement that you alone can give. We need tenderness and compassion that comes from a God that says, listen, listen to me and your soul will be satisfied with the richest affair. Why do you spend your money on what is not bread? Why do you drink from broken cisterns that hold no water? Come to me, all you who are thirsty. Lord Jesus, I don't know what you're doing in hearts tonight. Lord, some who perhaps it was even difficult to think about to come to any conversation about relationships because perhaps like me, they know nothing but broken relationships. Lord, oh, may your wooing hand and heart be gentle with those in this room. Maybe friendships even tonight after the amen is said, Lord, uh, to linger and to pray for one another and to encourage one another. Lord, I just pray for this whole church family called Park Church, Lord, that increasingly, collectively, they would know the encouragement of Jesus, the comfort of his love, the fellowship that the Spirit alone can create, the tenderness and compassion. And Lord, may it just be a veritable uh, culture of beauty that, that, that outsiders might begin to say, I've heard there's a different church where, where leaders are lepers like the rest of us, where, where, where the news is proclaimed, come with us to a fountain of living water and let us drink together and let us feed one another. Lord, may such kindness and sweetness and beauty run through this church into the cities and communities of daughter churches and other communities and friendships, Lord. Pray for marriages tonight, Lord, in this room where, where um, an old Bob Bennett song would be very true, Together All Alone. Lord, as you have been so kind to meet Darlene and I in our orphan-like ways and the disconnect of our sexual abuse and to 
Make us friends. Lord, do that for friends in this room. For those that have believed the lie that they're nobody until they are married to somebody. Lord, again, I said it earlier, make it so true, not just cliche. Jesus, you are the spouse we always wanted. And you're the only spouse we'll be married to forever. Let us find utter satisfaction in that. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your kiss in the gospel. Thank you for your presence with us. Thank you, Father, that that fourth panel is our reality, that that blue sky of the new earth we are destined for. One day we will be made perfect in love. Therefore, we will not despair. We will walk together. And we will take each other to Jesus. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a salvation. We pray, we proclaim, we declare in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much.